This is a Retail Insider Podcast. You're listening to the interview series. Welcome to the Retail Insider Podcast. I'm your host today, Craig Patterson, and we're joined here with two guests. We're joined with Gary Newbury. He's a senior executive on call and supply chain specialist for the last mile. We've also got Jeff Davenport. He's a real estate analytics specialist and strategist. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Craig. Good to be here. And a quick word from our podcast episode sponsor, Wift is a rapidly growing Canadian same-day shipping company that has partnered exclusively with Retail Insider. Learn more about Swift's scalable best-in-class last-mile solution by following the link in our show notes. Today, we're going to be talking a bit about shopping centers, uh, where they were, uh, what's been happening, and uh, where things are going here. Yeah, well, I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, and and the focus, I think, of the conversation is around what do we do with these temples of consumerism? So let's start with the mass proliferation of malls out in the suburbs. Those happened, at least in the United States, as a response to what, what folks call white flight, which is the desegregation of schools and a rise in crime that came or came about in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. It just gathered momentum and steam. More people moved out from urban cores further out, further out. They didn't feel safe in. They wanted their own school systems. And so that's, that's how you had a massive spread out into what it then were the exurbs uh, when they became populated enough suburbs. But, you know, mall developers saw an opportunity it was cheap land they could go buy a farm and build a mall. Uh, and they would bring their department store anchors with them. That was the draw for the mall. And then really made, they made their profit on the small shop uh, tenants that they would fill uh, in that the, the in-between space with. Uh, that, that continued. A bunch of different folks did it. And then their, their properties were bought. They were compiled. REITs you know, really came into fat in the 80s and 90s. So they consolidated all of these large properties, continued to build as well. Suburban growth slowed, I guess, in the early 2000s. But, uh, and this is a key point, the analysts and banks really didn't like to have mixed-use ownership. They wanted pure play, office, pure play, retail, and really not just retail. They wanted you to be a pure play shopping center owner or a mall owner. And that's it. I worked worked at CBL and Associates, and we had to sell off our strip center portfolio, A, because it was profitable, but B, uh, the, the analysts really wanted a pure play mall read. So that's that's what you've got here today with all of these malls under a few owners. They're not exactly alike, but they've got a lot of the same tenants. So it's that's really kind of the history of how how we got to, to this point um, as far as why they're there and why they're, they have the tenant mix that they do and why these owners don't have a mixed-use property there, why it's just uh, a shopping center. I'm interested in the genesis between a department store and a mall. The actual, if we go right back to the start of this, were they together? Were they often the same organization that the department store developed them out to find you know, enough space to plant themselves on it and attracted some retailers? Or, or were they actually on separate journeys? They just happened to form you know, what we see as a current state of uh, uh, the mall format. The answer is yes to all of it. Uh, they 
Initially, we're developing some of their own centers. Eventually, I, I would like to call it a partnership between mall developers rather than you know one being a leader and the other following. They, they really talked a lot to each other about where they wanted to be, you know, where they thought they could do business. And oftentimes, even, even when I was working for a mall developer, we would be shown aside from a department store. They would say, look, we've looked at the demographics. We think we can do some good business here. Why don't you build them all? We'll be your partner in that. So, the, you know, a lot of the times the department stores would commit to that expenditure to build their store. The, the mall small shop owner would come in and uh, develop the pad, the land, uh, deliver the pad to the department store. The department store was responsible for their own construction and the mall landlord did the rest. And so, you know, when you talk about the suburban malls, you're talking about four, maybe five department store anchors or at least what used to be department store anchors uh, in each property. So yeah, uh, it, it was it was a partnership and they followed each other. Uh, a lot of them were chasing the same customers and it, it was a, a play on critical mass. If we all go together and hold hands, everyone's going to have to come to us for, for their shopping needs. So that's, that's how it evolved here over time. I think it's fascinating. You look at some places like in Texas where oh, there was so much mall construction. I, I was watching it and they really came into their own. You know, I think they each had a Neiman Marcus store at one time and Neiman's, you know, since vacated, which I think is incredible. It, it, there's this turnover in terms of what's new and popular. In the case of Canada, we haven't seen quite the same dramatic uh, uh, number of shopping centers built. But here in Canada, we didn't really have the quote unquote white flight that the United States had. But uh, certainly there were elements of that. I think there was a real shift to suburbanization after World War II. Then with that, the shopping centers followed and the department stores, because department stores were really the domain of the downtown core in the early 1900s, right? Oh, yeah. They were they were like that through most of America, through the 70s. That, that's where the department store was. And, and they did and expand out into the malls until you know the first mall was built in a market further out in the suburbs. Yeah, I, th I think it's really fascinating because you know the suburban shopping center really did, I think at least in part, lead to significant changes in the downtown cores in both the United States and Canada. Um, especially, I think, in the United States, to the point that if you look at a downtown in an American city, there are not that many left that actually have department stores in the downtown core, which I, th I think is almost catastrophic to a degree because those were gathering centers for communities. Here in Canada, now Winnipeg and Edmonton are two major cities that no longer have department stores in their downtown cores, but have thriving suburban shopping centers. It, it's really quite dramatic. And, and in my opinion, it's unfortunate, but it is the way that things have progressed. Agreed on all, on all counts. The, you hit the nail on the head there. Goodness. And let's talk a little bit about just before the pandemic. Um, you know, things were, I, I, I can say from my own observations, things were starting to struggle a little bit. We were seeing increased vacancies in shopping centers. Um, we were also, I mapped out for early 2020, this is before we knew this whole pandemic thing was going to come. I'd mapped out that over 1000 store locations were set to close in Canada, which, which sounded pretty dramatic at the time. That would actually not be too bad considering, you know, the pandemic situation now, but, um, you know, tell me a little bit about what you were, um, seeing, uh, Jeff and, and even Gary as well, of course, uh, just before the pandemic here around uh, the shopping center in North America? Well, I, I, I just saw, generally speaking, quite quite busy mouse still. People were still going about their business. But I did recently re read a report uh, by Deloitte, weirdly, uh, that suggested that, that footfall traffic was down something like 22% 2018 to 2019 and a further 42% between 2019 and just before the start of the pandemic, that that wouldn't necessarily 
match my own understanding of walking around mouths and seeing pretty busy environments. So uh, over to you, Jeff, really. Here in the U.S., uh, the shutdown was extreme. And uh, really, people were hesitant to, to re-enter malls for most of 2020. Uh, if it were a large enclosed mall, outdoor malls fared much better. Uh, strip centers, power centers fared much better than, than, than a fully enclosed suburban mall. What, what we've seen since the, the, the vaccine release is that uh, even the enclosed malls uh, been readopted by consumers and they're, they're back in full force. If I, if I just add, uh, j- just before the pandemic, I, I noticed a lot of commentary about mixed use, and it's really going back to some of the stuff that you you, you brought forward, uh, Jeff, in the sense of uh, a financing organisation would support mouths with effectively a single use purpose. Um, and when, when I think about mouths, uh, that's mostly what I see is retail. Or there's something else. They're not mouths. They're very little in the way of real mixed use, where you have people living there, maybe school in there, some uh, stores, some entertainment, some food courts. You know, a whole uh, farm. You know, healthcare centres and stuff like that, all amalgamated into a community. And I, I, I'm not quite sure if when people talked about mixed use, you know, two, two three years ago, if they're actually seeing this very kind of evolved, immersive kind of community-led approach, or if they were just saying, well, you know, if, if there's less stores in there, or it's to convert that to live in accommodation or bring in some restaurants or do something, it was a more of a desperation thing to fill the gap, to, to maintain the revenue model, as opposed to where are consumers going? Of course, in 28, uh, 2019 and the start of 2020, nobody knew what was ahead of us. So it'd be interesting to see how vibrant those conversations are now, now that we're very uncertain about what a future might look like. But we certainly had 15, 16, 18 months of complete confusion and a retraction of consumers from shopping at mouths because of lockdowns, obviously, but uh, and a conversion to online versus mouths. But I think that people are still going out to mouths. But a recent, um, I went round to my local centre uh, about a month ago. We, we were in lockdown in in uh, Ontario up until the early part of, I think it was June, wasn't it, uh, Craig? And then it opened up and I went in a couple of Sundays after that and I didn't actually see very much shopping. I saw lots of people milling around in, it was an enclosed mall, saw lots of people in, in their walkways, but actually very few people actually in stores except for one or two notable stores which had queues like Lululemon, H&M, whatever. But the majority of the stores in this relatively busy mall were not being shopped. We are, you know, you can track that with a lot of the retail sales figures that we get when it, when you break it down to subsector and you can see, you know, what, what are the expenditures in this specific category of store. And some of them are very mall specific. Um, what, what, what we've you know, we, we've seen it pick up. I mean, we're seeing the sales pick up and uh, a lot of the mall landlords are saying that their mall sales per square foot on the small shops uh, are at or have exceeded 2019 levels. So the shopping is being done here. Um, but but with the, the, the mixed use portion of your comment, 
what are we seeing around discussion of that uh, further di diversification of that real estate into a mixed use product from a pure play product? Uh, it's a tough slog um, because of uh, these guys really legally tied themselves up to not have anything but a retail uh, shopping center. And that is, you know, there are so many restrictions on, on space use and how they can use their real estate that they're almost pigeonholed into uh, retail and, and not just retail in general. A lot of them uh, had agreements in there that would, they wouldn't have a grocery store that, uh, you know, there, there were a number of carve outs that, that for one reason or another, uh, they decided to exclude certain uses in there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure there, everyone is probably, well, at least the mall landlord is regretting those agreements at this point. Uh, but it serves as a, as a nice, you know, a comfort for them for, for a period of time and it very well, very distinctly defined them. But, you know, getting back to, to y'all's comments around there is no town center in these suburbs. You know, conversion of that retail shopping center into that center of, of commerce and activity would be ideal. I just don't know, you know, what it would take to, 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 to fully get that done unless the mall was completely vacated and uh, new zoning was applied to it. Yeah, and the um, department stores in some cases really were able to control the future development, I was told. I was also told that, you know, and these are Canadian landlords again, when Sears was shutting down in Canada, because we no longer have it here, some of the landlords, they were not that unhappy with the situation because they were given a level of flexibility to do things with their shopping center that they didn't have before. Because Sears, in a lot of cases, ended up taking over retail spaces from retailers that, you know, were... Uh, along the lines of, say, Eaton's or, uh, you know, Simpson's or Woodward's, which had, you know, 99-year leases on their shopping centers, could basically dictate what could be done. And this basically prevented these landlords from being able to do certain things that they wanted to do, including mixed use for their shopping centers. So um, I was working on the shopping center study for a few years. We're going to be hopefully releasing something coming up here uh, um, at some point in the next few months, it's going to be a challenge because of the shutdowns, you know, landlords may not want to necessarily cooperate, but, uh, what I noticed before the pandemic was landlords certainly had an appetite to try to capitalize on their properties through density, which means that, uh, you know, not just having retail, there, putting housing, whether or not that's condominium units to sell off or whether or not that's uh, rental apartment buildings that would create uh, a continuous stream of income or office buildings or other uses, or even just attractions to bring people in, uh, whether or not it's a park, or I don't know if you can call that an attraction or a school, but but certainly a mixed use uh, you know, traffic generator. Uh, and and now one thing I'm wondering too, we're seeing this a bit more in the United States, is, is uh, fulfillment and micro-fulfillment within shopping centers. And uh, Gary, this is something probably that you could answer, uh, just given your expertise around this, is... Uh, um, what might we see with with shopping centers in terms of, um, you know, I guess, storage and fulfillment, even for e-commerce or click and collect? Yeah, I suspect that um, as anchors vacate, it will create this space. And it's whether or not that space can actually be used for fulfillment purposes. So, so supporting 
inbound goods into the mall for all its for all the retailers being booked in, being stored. And one of three things happening. One is to re to top up the shelves day to day. The other one is click and collect across multiple brands, multiple banners, and obviously home delivery is an extension of that. So that, is, that for me is a great opportunity of Mao's. Mixed use, single use, it doesn't matter. You know, I come from retail, so it'd be better if it was just single use, but I, I'm kind of getting more flexible in my views. But that fundamental concept of having an app that people can sit on their settees and, and be able to shop across brands and for them, them to give a direction, whether or not I'll come and pick that up by uh, drive past and you can put it in my boot or you can bring it, you know, bring it to my porch or, or cross my threshold or I'll come and pick it up by actually going to the store. I think that that's the other two missing pieces of a jigsaw for me. One is converting that former, say, anchor like Sears, because certainly my local uh, local mail, that Sears closed in 2017. It's still empty, 2021. That's a... That must be a big cost for uh, for that uh, for that now. Uh, so using that space, and the other one is finding an app which can go across all of the brands, not just you know the ones with ex- existing capabilities in in um, putting their stuff out on the web, uh, but actually all brands. And if you come in to my Mal as a Mal owner, I want you to sign up to this set of systems. You can interface them with your existing. POS systems and uh, and uh, digital applications, but you must do this so we can then present the community mail to our community as opposed to, well, you know, you've got a Canadian Tower app, you use that for that, and et cetera. You need to combine all these things into a sort of a, an omni, an omni mail as opposed to individual brands. Uh, and, and the other one around that, uh, sort of an adjacency, is the ability... If, if we think about a single use for now, and it's all about retail, is being able to create some interest in that mouth for people to, to drive traffic into the mouth. So the flexibility of rental agreements, both for, re- for retail and, and for the uh, landlord, must be now moved forward so that if a retail concept is failing in the mouth, actually it's in the interest of the landlord to get shot of it. So rather than saying, no, we're signing up for 10 years, you know, bank that money for the next 10 years and turn our back while, you know, that, that area of the mouse looking quite, you know, dilapidated, nobody's going down there very much because they don't like that particular banner. That needs to come out. And similarly, to be able to bring in things on a pop-up basis, that you, you just create the environment, create the application that allows them to sell through your website, the mail website, but to to actually move these things through the mouth. So there's always a reason uh, for people to come to the mouth as well as order from the mouth. Yes, I think uh, the, the, both of y'all touched on this, the, the closure of, of department stores, weak department stores and viable shopping centers is, is uh, the term I like to use is addition by subtraction. It, 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 you can do a lot more with something else there than uh, a Sears that's on its last leg, right? And, and you know, getting into this, uh, you made a great point, Gary. The retailers, we've been harping on them for years to embrace omnichannel. You know, you guys have to get involved and be where your customers are. But it's time for the landlords to really think about how do they get involved in omnichannel. 
and creating, taking some of these old spaces, vacated spaces, as you were saying, and, and converting them to, to a, an omni-channel platform for small shop retailers where they could potentially, you know, get that last mile delivery to their end consumer. That is truly a win-win-win situation uh, for the landlord of the mall, for the retailers uh, leasing the space, and for the, the consumers that are getting their products in the, the, the mode that they'd like to get them. Yeah. We're, I'm wondering where we go from here in terms of shopping centers, in terms of the tenant mix. Uh, um, and Jeff, I'll come back to you on that. What do you see in terms of, say, temporary leases, percentage rent leases? Uh, um, you know, and then we can talk about, you know, the future of the properties overall. But uh, sort of as we look into a bit of the future here, I mean, one thing that I've noticed, I'll just kind of kick it off, is, is graduated leases. And what I mean by that is, say, for this year, you know, there'll be a reduced rate Next year, there'll be a reduced rate, but it'll be a little bit higher than this year. And then in 2023, there could be for full market rent like a retailer may have paid in uh, 2019. Yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of legality to still work out between the uh, between the landlords and the, the tenants that, that skip their rent. Um, so, you know, we we we. We'll we'll see what that ends up being and what what you know 2019, 2020 rent actually was, and then who's left to pay 2021, 2022, and 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 yeah, further on down the line. Uh, you know, graduated rent is a is merely a bet on inflation, if you if you ask me. I mean, we we were always uh, trying to get as much as we could, and an easier way to do that is not, you know, have a huge jump, just have a bunch of small. Uh, small jumps along the way. Um, so graduated rent, I think will will uh, probably stick around, uh, although it could be to to the detriment of the landlord, certainly if if inflation really picks up. Uh, but as far as the percentage rent side of that, Craig, um, you know the, the 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 cost of goods sold for most retailers has declined so much over the last ten years or so. Uh, based on their supply chains and where they're getting their products from that had you know, been moved to low manufacturing cost areas like China. Uh, their cost of goods sold is flatter down. And uh, so if they have flat sales, their profitability could be higher than before. And so the, the landlord charges rent, well, at least here, they like to call it occupancy costs. That is your base rent plus your common area maintenance, real estate taxes, and insurance divided by the gross sales of that store. So Mace Rich likes to say that uh, we like to get 16% uh, occupancy cost. So that's really how much does it cost that tenant to be in that shopping center versus the, the volume of sales that they have. And I, that, that metric's been breaking down because, you know, the, the retailers have been as, as you know, from from in a good mall, they have been as profitable as ever, but their sales haven't changed a whole lot. Um, and that's just because of the they're able to get cheaper product and they can discount it, and uh, it shows up in their sales as as flat or or maybe up a little. You know, it, it all depends on the volume, but generally. Uh, we haven't seen 
the inflation that was pushing, you know, it, the rent needs to follow inflation, right? One way or the other. And um, so I, the, the percentage rent has more or less dissipated as even being a possibility. I mean, it was, that was kind of that, that uh, uh, last line of defense if inflation really picked up and there was an escalation in the lease. Uh, but the, the, the sales of that retailer would have grown with that inflation. And that's kind of that, that emergency ramp where the landlord would actually get some more money if inflation blew out. So uh, that's, that's the way I've always looked at it and, and recently understood it uh, from, from the last 10 years in, in a deflationary uh, product environment. And Gary, you might have some insight into this. Um, I've been told by some retailers that, uh, you know, they're, well, this is around supply chain again. That's why I'm asking the question uh, that some costs have certainly gone up. You know, we've got container ships that are maybe not stranded off port, but, you know, are not able to dock to to deliver some goods, depending, you know, for various reasons. We've actually got Canadian Tire that uh, purchased part of a port to be able to continue with its, uh, you know, operations in terms of getting products to consumers. And and certainly the cost, I think, from the shipping standpoint, at least here in Canada, you know, there's complexities where, you know, a country that's large, uh, this has been a little bit of a challenge. Uh, Gary, do you have any insights into that? Yeah, it's all getting very much more expensive very quickly. Um, well, the point that Jeff made uh, before in the sense of uh, as, it, as he looks in, in the US market, there's stock unavailability and also the, the shelf price of things that are starting to rise to, to, to suppress uh, people's interest in, in, in buying things. But the, I think the big issue uh, around the supply chain is that to try and break out of this, we haven't got many op op options. We've we typically been buying from the Far East. And before, for, for, for years, it's, it's all been going the right way. The prices have been coming down. We get container loads. We don't have too much disruption to service. Uh, the, only, the only disruption is when you open up and loads of insects fall out and you send it back. Uh, you've always had containers. You've always had pallets. If you put things on pallets in containers, you've always had uh, uh, ships to move things around. Everything's, you know, been very easy. On, on, you know, obviously, we do some firefighting along the way, but generally speaking, very easy. All of a sudden, we've had restrictions on uh, the, the actual manufacturing aspect, you know, because they've been in lockdown, and often that lockdown has been out of step with our demand patterns. Then when they get back to manufacturing, they've got probably your competitors or coming into the same factory and they're squabbling for production slots, then once they produce it, they have to get it to a port. And that's assuming the port is open and functioning. It's got ships coming in and, and berthing uh, and, and containers. We seem to, in the early stage, just kind of in, in sort of uh, March, April, May time, sort of sent ships out across the world and just left the empty containers and come back empty uh, with ships because there was such a demand starting to build. Getting the ship, making sure you get on it and not rolled over, which could be another week, two weeks delay, assuming the port's working or the terminal in the port is working that you've been assigned to. Getting it across here, as you rightly say, Craig, in, in the Los Angeles uh, port area, there was a, a holding bay of 24 big ships <laughs> waiting to get into and being allowed to come onto the dock to be, to be uh, unloaded. And then 
to find a truck to take it to a railhead to move it across into um, into a relevant territory and find another truck and a, a skeletal frame to to move it to a DC. So all these things are sort of been under the under the microscope. The sunlight's really been shown, you know, shone a very strong light on this just in time kind of supply chain management thing, which has really been proven to not being just in time at all, not being at all resilient. So the option is, oh, let's go local. Well, that's fine. If you can find the, <laughs> the artisans, the tradespeople, the factory capacity, the, the, the tier one, tier two, tier three providers who aren't actually themselves buying stuff from the Far East. So um, the options of getting out of this in the short term are incredibly limited. You have to shout very loud at your suppliers and your logistic partners to try and elevate your, your product towards your stores uh, quicker than your competitors. And that's the unfortunate consequence. But you know, when prices, prices for raw materials like lumber are going up four times, you know, four times the price it was pre-pandemic. And then the freight is moving at instead of 2,000 a container, 65, $65,000 for a container. You know, it's very hard for retailers to try and work out, am I going to get the stock and what should I price it at when I get it? So I've, I, I've got enough money to place another order. And I think that's an underappreciated risk, Gary, uh, just, just getting the, the products to the, to the retailers to sell to the consumers is, is very difficult. And uh, it could, you know, if there's much more turmoil in the coming months, uh, Christmas will be a very, very strange season this year. Yeah, no, it, it's been a challenge. And I, I guess the last question we've got here is, you know, jumping back into the shopping center conversation, where, where do things go from here? Uh, again, I've done the shopping center studies. We were tracking uh, developers that were looking at doing mixed use with their centers uh, before the pandemic, as well as looking at, you know, trying to do buzzy pop-ups. There's all kinds of stuff, you know, to activate the shopping centers, try to make them more interesting. Um, do you guys have any predictions on the, what we might see in the future in terms of, uh, you know, shopping centers in North America, um, whether or not they'd be demolished, whether or not they'd be redeveloped? And, and of course, that's going to be location dependent, too. I think 20 to 30 percent are going to be repurposed, demolished and repurposed. Um, they're just they probably should never have been built or they were built and killed by a competitor um, uh, before or after. So. I, th I think we'll see in the in the United States. You know, I, I'm fond of saying we're we're uh, we're not over retailed. We're under demolished. Um, so we'll 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 get uh, we'll get that taken care of and sorted out eventually. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we have a lot of great, well located shopping centers uh, that 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 are just on terrific real estate uh, with backed by fantastic communities. And I think we'll see more and more uh, redevelopment to a mixed use component. Um, you know, that is, it, it makes sense in, in a number of instances. Uh, but as Gary was saying earlier, I think there is an opportunity to really support the tenants and the income stream they have in place by providing a last mile option uh, for those retailers that both inhabit that space or want to have that last mile option um, by, by 
you know, having a presence in that warehouse that, that they could convert that department store into. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I th- right now they're, they're throwing, you know, wet noodles against the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, you know, I know CBL has done a casino uh, with an old anchor in Pennsylvania. Um, you're, you're seeing just about everything in terms of what happens with these old spaces if they're not retail. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I, I think there's going to have to be some kind of gravitational force that, that keeps them retail centric just based on the way that the, the centers are already set up uh, and, and what they do needs to be complementary to their current tenant base and uh, more than just, you know, revenue driven or what, what can get us purely the most, the most dollars for that real estate without thinking about the remainder of the larger yeah, parcel. I, uh, I, I've got a number of thoughts, but the, the, the big thought that uh, in, in light of what, Jeff was suggesting, me and Jeff have talked about this uh, more recently, is that certainly in the run-up to the pandemic, Amazon were taking over old mouths, old decrepit mouths, just taking them over. And their, their purpose in life is to get as much stock as close to a community as possible. And for reasonably well-located mouths, which have fallen into disrepair, they're an ideal, they're an ideal hub. You can ram in a hundred million SKUs into one of these, you know, reasonably big uh, mouths and serve all your customers. So the com- competitors to the mouth is Amazon, not not just by you know being able to. Uh, well, the, Amazon are already organised. They, they, they've got property, they've got stock, and they've got logistics all organised under one management team. At the moment, mouths have got mouths, they've got stores, and they've got stock. And they're not very well coordinated. So they have to find a way of bringing that together very quickly and working collaboratively to, to make their mouth both a destination for the, for the mobile phone, but also a destination which perhaps in the short term Amazon can't do, make their mouth a destination in a retail sense. Um, so that is, for, for my mind, if they can't get to that same kind of way of thinking that we've got the stock, we've got the retail brands, and we can get into the community, we can get this stock out, and we can also bring re- uh, consumers to our to our environment and, and try and uh, upsell them on that. That's the advantage, but they have to get much more coordinated than they, they currently are. And I know that we've got, uh, I think, Ivanhoe and Oxford all doing their small bits. I don't know if it's part of a bigger plan. But it all looks like a somewhat piecemeal tactics right now. That then an overall sort of embracing strategy that gets them to be to sort of knock Amazon out of their out of their local community. Oh, very interesting. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for this. It's uh, very interesting to discuss shopping centers here. I think the future is going to be. Uh, quite interesting. Um, one of my thoughts is uh, shopping center uh, landlords are actually going to have a fairly significant impact on the future of our cities in terms of, as we, at least in Canada, see these town centers developing with the shopping centers. The landlords themselves are actually going to have a fairly key role, I think, in developing these new town centers, which we will be seeing here, you know, in at least in Canadian cities. We're going to see it in the United States, but I think in Canada, we're a little bit ahead just because of our real estate prices and the fact that we actually don't have a lot of this space and and how our cities are developing, especially in Toronto, which is just seeing explosive growth and what's going to see it again, I think. So I want to say thank you so much, both of you. We've got 
Gary Newbury, he's a senior executive on call and supply chain specialist with a specialty in last mile, as well as Jeff Davenport. He's a real estate uh, analytics uh, expert and strategist. I want to say thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining me today. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. And I'm Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief of Retail Insider. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Take care and bye for now.